So go ahead and grab uh, your Bibles, Judges chapter 1. And uh, part of the reason why I know that we're probably not going to make it is because of the picture you have up there on your PowerPoint. Uh, I added it today, and uh, this is stuff I find fascinating. Uh, Others may not, or maybe you do, uh, I don't know, or um, whatnot. But um, we are looking at a part of history that uh, is a bit obscure to us. Uh, In fact, I can be honest with you, even though I love Judges, um, I'd be lying to you if I, if I could have really articulated much that happens in chapter 1. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be able to articulate to you that Judges is the continuation of Joshua in terms of the conquest. I guess I sort of had in my head that Joshua go, he comes in, does the conquest, and yeah, there's little pockets and stuff, but job well done, and then he dies. And really, it's, it's, it's done, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and that's what Judges starts out with that before you get to the biographical parts in chapter 3. And so this has been a learning experience for me. This is a book we just overlook a lot. And so there's so much history in it. We struggle to know what does it mean to us in the 21st century, but also did any of it happen? And if it did happen, how would we know? How could we verify that it happened? Now, I believe the Bible, so I do believe that Israel did go into uh, Canaan. Uh, they, they did uh, tear down Jericho. They did go into Ai. They did go into uh, all these places. So I do believe that, and the Bible is sufficient for me. But can we go outside of the Bible and to see some uh, 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 evidence that corroborates it? And actually, I think we do. I actually want to talk about one of those uh, to start out because it has to do with, with what we see in chapter 1. And that is what are called the Armana tablets, sometimes called the Armana letters. We have like over 300 of these. What they are is a series of letters written on tablets from Canaanite uh, city-state kings, if you want to call them, governors, mayors, whatever you want to call them. Um, And they were sent to the Egyptian pharaoh. And what they were basically saying is, um, we need your help because much of Canaan was controlled by Egypt. And so they are appealing to uh, the chief dog saying, we need help. There is a group of marauders known as the, uh, make sure I pronounce it right, um, the uh, Habiru, something because the Aperu, but the Habiru, uh, they're coming from town to town and they're marauding. They, 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 they're just uh, taking over cities and towns and they're, they're taking possession of the land. Now, the question we have is who are the Habiru? Because that's the term you and I, we don't use and probably never heard of. What we can tell is, um, it is, I think, very likely and very possible that what we have here are Canaanite leaders describing for us groups of marauders, including and especially the Israelites. Uh, Because the way they're described um, sounds like the Israelites, people who are come from the outside during the time that Egypt may have been at its weakest, and they're going from town to town with an army taking cities for themselves and then taking possession of it. What does that sound like to you? If you take out the Bible, we would not have a clue who this, who this could be. All right? The Bible actually gives us uh, some details of this. Let me give you a few examples uh, of this. Uh, the king of Gezer. Remember Gezer, because we may get that, that far. It's the latter part of chapter 1. King of Gezer wrote, quote, So may the king, my lord Pharaoh, save this land from the power of the Aperu. He then describes the superiority of their forces. They're going from town to town. The king of Jerusalem, who we will look at today, um, he was particularly distressed. We'll talk about the Jebusites. Quote, the war against me in Jerusalem is severe. The Apiru has plundered all the lands of the king of Pharaoh. 
If there are no archers, lost are the lands of the king. And what's also interesting is we discover is that a lot of these guys are complaining that there are other city-states who actually ally with these hopiru, these marauders. And interestingly, if, if in Joshua and Judges, we discover there are certain towns that are never attacked. One of them is Shechem. If you read the, the Armana tablets, we discover that Shechem apparently allied itself with the Haparu. Now, the Bible never says Shechem did that. It's just they're never attacked, according to the Bible. Well, that may give us some, uh, some backdrop as to why they were spared early on, because they, they allied and helped the Haparu, who I think most of them are going to be the Israelites uh, in town, uh, are doing that. So... Um, and what's interesting is that Egypt never sent help. According to these tablets, they never send help. And we're always wondering, why is that? I have an idea. The army was just wiped out by the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, the Red Sea. And you just had 10 plagues just wipe out its economy. Pharaoh's got uh, bigger fish to fry, not to mention slaves leaving. Yeah, Don. Mm-hmm. They were called the Yeah. Yeah, so, so basically we, we have this group called the Hopiru, and we don't know who they are. Yeah, but if, if you take how they're described and you put up against the Bible, the parallels. So uh, one archaeologist said, not all Hopiru are Israelites, but all Israelites are Hopiru. And, and I think that's a helpful way of putting it because uh, it's a generic term for what they would view as marauders, just people showing up just killing and, and, and taking over towns and all that. We're going to see more of that here. So my point here is, is to say, now, I, I cannot say definitively the, the Armada tablets prove that everything you read in Joshua Judges is true. I'm not saying that. I am saying is that the parallels are interesting, that, that um, this, this is ancient history, but I do think there's reasons to believe uh, there's some truth to it. But with that said, let's start here in, in uh, what we see in the first 20 verses of chapter 1. We started last week is conquest, the theme of conquest. You remember that Joshua's dead. That's the first verse. And uh, Judah, uh, remember that, that now you don't have a central leader. What you're going to end up with are tribal leaders. And so we start with the story of Judah. And the rest of the chapter give the other tribes. So we start with Judah, who, who gets 20 verses. And they uh, ask the Lord, where, where should we go? And God sends them out, and they go from town to town, um, for the most part, um, um, you know, uh, taking possession of the land. And they have the tribe of Simeon with them, because some of Simeon's allotment is in Judah. Well, we left off in verse 15, so let's pick up where we left off, verse 16, um, and continue the narrative. It's still Judah. So verse 16, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of of palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arid, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza uh, with its territory, and Ash- Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron, Ak- if you're from Breckeridge County, Ekron, Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. So uh, we talked about the Anakim last week, giants, Nephilim, all that, so I don't want to um, 
going all that. So what we have here in verses 16 to 20 are the final victories of Judah. Uh, he, he defeats Zephath, Gaza, and Ashkelon. Now, verse 16 is interesting. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law. Of course, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, was a Midian, not a Kenite. So what do we do with this? I don't know. Uh, the most prominent uh, view, which probably most likely, is that uh, much like a Judahite is an Israelite, but you could be called an Israelite or a Judahite, so too Jethro is both a Median and a Kenite. That is to say, perhaps the Kenites are a tribe among the Medians. That's kind of the, the common view. But remember what you have here is that because Moses married Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, that Moses has now Kenites in his family. He's married into them. And from what we can tell, they seem to have um, gone uh, with the Israelites into the promised land and seem to have um, allied themselves with Judah, who are the most prominent tribe. In fact, um, uh, in chapter 4, we meet a Kenite. It's Yael. It's the lady who uses the tent peg. She's a Kenite. And so here, here her people are mentioned. Uh, They're coming into the promised land, siding themselves with, with Judah. Uh, nevertheless, we're, we're given really no details regarding Zephyr's destruction. We're just told that they changed the name to Horma, which means devoted to destruction. So it seems to be they come in and they destroy it and they say, like Jericho, we're not going to inhabit this land. We're just going to destroy it. Um, and perhaps God says, I want you to destroy it and walk away. Uh, remember that we often, because we're ignorant of ancient Near Eastern culture, we think of the Canaanites as innocent bystanders of these marauders. No, they're under the judgment of God. We are to associate them with the Nephilim of the days of Noah. That's why the, the Anakim are mentioned. Um, what the Israelites are doing, they're cleansing the land like a flood. So you have to go through Noah to get to Adam, basically. They, they want to create a promised land flowing milk and honey, a Garden of Eden. But you have to flood the land. You have to cleanse it first. Um, verse 18, Judah finally captures the future Philistine cities of Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron. Uh, Ekron. But again, if you live in uh, Meade County or Breckenridge County, you have to do it with your Kentucky accents. Ekron. Uh, um, I don't know if you've ever been to Ekron. Not too far from uh, Augustine, I think it is. But uh, there was a good church out there. I remember I did a, uh, I went to a revival for uh, really nice people. Um, but these cities continue to pop up in ancient Israel. One of those cities is still popping up in the news, Gaza. You're like, hey, I've read that. Gaza, hey, we're still fighting over Gaza, aren't we? Um, so uh, the, these are probably, and look, if you just do a word study of these cities, they're going to pop up everywhere. Uh, and they're going to pop up particularly with the Philistines, who are people to see. But then in verses 19 and 20, we get a summary of victories. Um, God blesses the Judahites except regarding the inhabitants of the plain. The cause of their failure seems to be tied to technology. It says there at the end of verse 19 uh, that these Canaanites had chariots of iron. Now, um, this is a historical comment. They could not beat these people because they had superior technology. We know this, right? I mean, America has won a lot of battles and wars because we have the best technology, and we've gone after some nations that didn't. We went after Saddam Hussein twice. He didn't stand much of a chance. And mostly because we got bigger guns than they do, right? We know this. 
Um, and that makes it really difficult to win wars when uh, you don't have the technology. I mean, think about it. If, if, if my son and his, his buddies pick a basketball team, my son does not like basketball, bless his heart. But he went up against a bunch of seven-foot NBA players. They could play the best game of their life. They ain't winning. You know? And so, um, but however, that phrase, chariots of iron, is interesting because they've gone up and we lost because they got better technology than us. And iron is a very expensive uh, tool at this time. And the Israelites don't have access to that. They're former slaves. They have no home. So, so they're at a real disadvantage. However, I think this is a theological statement. We're going to come back to this in, in, here in a minute. But Joshua promised them that despite their inferiority, they would still win. Let me give you an example of this. This is uh, Joshua 17. Um, the people of Joseph said, so this is Ephraim and Manasseh, those tribes. The hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron. There it is. And that's what we read here. Now, here it's the, it's the sons of Joseph, the Ephraim and Manasseh tribes. But here it's Judah. And, and they've come up on this superior technology. And yet Joshua says, don't worry about it. Verse 17, Joshua said, you are a numerous people, have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. Uh, through the force, it shall be clear, possess it, you know, so on. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, though they are strong. That's the promise. So I just want to put a bug in your ear. It's odd, isn't it, that they couldn't win this battle. And I actually think that by the time we get to this point in Judges 1, we're assuming that it's just going to be a continuation of the story of Joshua. For the most part, Joshua is one victory after another. I know the story of Achan and Ai and all that, but for the most part, they enter into the land, they go to Jericho, they go to these, all these other places, and they win all these battles, and they take possession of the land, and then, then you have half of Joshua is the allotment of Israel. Judah over here, and Simeon over there, and and Issachar over here, and, you know, it's just a lot, it's kind of a boring part of the, of, of the book. Um, but then you get into the Judges and the first 19 verses or 18 verses, and you think, oh, we're just going to get more details of this. Here's Judah. They beat them, they've beaten them, then they load up and they go over here, they, they destroy that city, they take possession of that land, they wipe out these people. It's just the same thing. Yet I think if you read the first 20 verses in greater detail, you're actually going to see how, how well-written it is um, because the writer is subtly warning the reader that not everything is okay. If you just read it on the surface, everything looks fine. It's sort of like um, you ever watch a movie and you get to the end, you realize who the villain was the whole time. You go back and you rewatch the movie. You're like, oh, how did I miss that? That comment they made there, now that I know how the story ends, I, I get now read it in a different light. Sixth Sense is a good example of that. Everyone who discovers, spoiler alert, Bruce Willis's character was dead all along. You go back and watch, you're like, the director was telling me he was dead. I just didn't see it. I think we could do that here with these opening 20 verses of Joshua. Let me, let me give you uh, three things here uh, to sort of show you real quick, because I think there's real application here. We know the book of Judges is where Israel just, they just fall apart. They really abandon the Lord, and God's grace, God is gracious to them, but they, they just abandon the Lord. And we see early hints of this um, 
in Judges. So let me give you a few examples uh, of this. In the first three verses, we see an example of half obedience. If you want to see the reference here, uh, verse uh, 2. Um, so in verse 1, they, they inquire the Lord, who will go up to fight for us? Verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up, for I've given him the land. Okay. So what is the commandment of God? Judah, go up, get the land. All right, there's, there's no confusion about that from the writer. What do we read for the next several verses? Simeon. Judah and Simeon take the land. You see the half obedience. So subtle. So subtle. You read through this, you're like, okay, yeah. Simeon and Judah, best buddies. They're, they're brothers. And, and their, their, their allotment overlaps. It makes sense. If Simeon helps Judah, Judah helps Simeon. The command was not Judah and Simeon. It's Judah. It's half obedience. Half obedience. It's just so subtle. Let me give you another example of this. And this is small compromises. I use the word small, but I think when you see this, you're going to realize it's not very small. In verses 4 to 15, there's that gross story we looked at last week where they they go in to Bezek. And they take the king, uh, Adonai Bezek, the lord of Bezek, the city of Bezek. Um, and you remember what they do to him? They, they capture him, they cut off his thumbs and toes. You remember why? He did the same thing to 70 other kings. Now, we talked about that number seven is interesting. It's seven times 10, for those of you who want public school in Nolan County, and seven and 10 are perfect numbers. So, and, and you get the 70 nations in Genesis 10 and 11. Jesus sends out the 70 uh, to, to do door-to-door evangelism, I guess. And um, so that number is interesting. And you remember his response is not, this is unjust. His response is, well, of course this is what happens to me. Because I've spent my political life not just mutilating those whom I defeat, but humiliating them. Because I make them to, 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 to scrap food off the bottom of, you know, below the table just to eat without their thumbs and toes. So I'm, just not, I'm not just mutilating them so they can't war against me. I'm humiliating them. So he says, this is, the way, this is the way it goes. Now, Paul's there. That makes sense to the Canaanite because that's what Canaanites do. And I could pull these up again, but remember last week we said mutilation is pretty common in the Bible. In Judges, it's the, book, it's the story of Samson. Who mutilates Samson? The Philistines. Later, we see that uh, it happens to Nahash, King Nahash, and it happens elsewhere. Uh, remember that the Babylonians come and uh, pluck out the eyes of King Zedekiah. Last thing he sees is the murder of his children, and then his eyes are plucked out. You'll notice a pattern here. It's almost always Canaanites or Gentile pagans doing this. You want to know who doesn't mutilate people? The Jews. But what do we see them doing here? What's the commandment? The commandment is for them to wipe everyone out. This is a flood. You got to cleanse, wipe everyone out. But what do we see the Hebrews doing, the Judahites doing? They're mutilating. That is what Canaanites do. That is not what Hebrews do. So we see these small compromises that we're really going to see starting in verse 21 with the other tribes. Is already we're seeing they're acting like Canaanites when they're supposed to be cleansing the land of Canaanites. God does not want us to mutilate bodies because the body is sacred. We're made in the image of God, and God created us. And we, on this end of the cross, we know the incarnation, that the body matters because God took on flesh. 
The Hebrews don't mutilate bodies. They bury the dead. They honor the living. They, you don't do this, but that's exactly what we see Israelites doing with Adonai Bezek. Of course, he's not going to act surprised. This is the way the Canaanites live. It's not the way the Hebrews should live. So we read that at first thinking, that's gruesome. But hey, that's just the way it was back then. When in reality, the writer wants you to say, pause for a minute. Why are the Hebrews doing what the Canaanites do? That's the problem in Canaan. If you don't cleanse the land, you'll succumb to it. That's what happens to Israel. Throughout all these small compromises. The third one I put up here as failure, but I didn't really know how else to, to describe this. Um, and that is what we just saw, that God promised them that if they would do all that he asked, that they would clear the land and cleanse it. And yet we see that Judah failed. So they have triumph after triumph after triumph, conquest after conquest after conquest, and all of a sudden it just stops. And, and we're going to see that this picks up the narrative with the other tribes in chapter 1. And it implies something is rotten within Israel already. There's a cancer, and it's affecting their ability to cleanse the land. Yeah, Don? I think, too, you know, I think America's going to find this out in our next little get-together, is that the battle is the Lord's. Yeah. Not technology. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I think. I think they started looking at technology, and they lost faith. Yeah. Because they didn't win all the other battles. God took them through there. He hardly lost a man in any of them. So right. Right. Now, this story, in that context you bring up, is what the story of David is all about. Because you have Goliath who has, because he's the Philistines, he's got all the iron. He's got a monopoly of that. And that's why the tech spends so much time on his armor, the technology. He's got the shield, he's, he's got scales, scaly armor. And no one can take him down. And Israel is inferior technologically. And David has a sling and a few rocks. Yeah. And he, and he says that if, if I can slay the lion, which is like Samson, and, and I'm just a little shepherd boy, like Moses, why should I fear this Nephilim-like character? And the son of Judah, David, does what the Judahites couldn't do here, which then allows you to go right to the Jesus. So, yeah, that's, it's, it's almost like the Bible is written by God. So you get conquest, the first 20 verses, and in, then it's clear that you're getting the compromise here in the rest of the chapter. Um, so again, that we were thinking on the surface, hey, it's all going to be uh, good news. But actually, starting here, we realize yeah, this, is, this is a terrible story. Start with the Benjaminites, verse 21. Um, says, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. That's all we get. That's basically all you're going to get with the Benjaminites in this chapter. That's it. You got 20 verses, basically, of Judah. One verse for Benjaminite. That's typical of what it is we're going to find. Now, earlier, you may remember, uh, Judah sacked Jerusalem. Here, the Benjaminites can't sack Jerusalem. This is where Judges, as a modern reader, is going to be confusing to us, and we have to accept it. There is overlap here, chronologically, the writer does not care about. Because he's developing a different narrative, and it's done by... Uh, tribe, not by timeline. So I'm going to make another Lord of the Rings reference. If this doesn't make sense, skip it. The Lord of the Rings, that when Tolkien published it, he did it without an editor. One of the reasons is because he knew no editor would publish it. What Tolkien did was he told his story not chronologically, but through characters. It's three books. It's really six books. And so, uh, and it's brilliant in the book, 
but it didn't work in the movie, uh, movies. So in the book, you get the story of um, Frodo and Sam last. And they're the ones going to destroy the ring and all that. But what you get are those who are, you know, the fellowship breaks up. So you get Gandalf and Aragorn and all that. They go to the Black Gate of Mordor. That's, that's where they got to destroy the ring. And this guy called the Mouth of Sauron comes out, and he holds up Frodo's uh, armor. Now, we left Frodo in the previous book. We have no idea what's happened to him because he's not talented in se sequential order. He's doing it by the characters. So we, the reader, because we've left Frodo and Sam, we have no idea what happened to them. We think, oh no, they got Frodo. When are you going to tell us the story of Frodo and Sam? Because it's told through the story of the characters, not through the timeline. Well, that works great in the story because then the story goes all the way back where we left off of Frodo and Sam and tells it from their perspective. Okay? Um, in the movies, it has to, the timeline has to match. So you have these storylines following it. So they had to take out the scene with the, the mouth of Sauron, or yeah, mouth of Sauron, because we knew that Frodo and Sam were okay. You know, but you didn't know that in the book. That's Judges. So we just got, okay, Jerusalem is sacked by the Judahites, and they didn't you know, take possession of it. But then we read, oh, no, 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 the Jebusites are there. Don't worry about the timeline. See it through the lens of the tribes. But what's important for us to see here is, is that when the Benjaminites come, um, they are unable to sack the city and to take possession of it. Instead, what they do is they decide to dwell with the Jebusites. By the way, this verse is almost verbatim in Joshua 15. The Jebusites and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So here it's Benjaminite, it's Benjamin, there it's Judah, but it's a very similar verse, uh, almost verbatim. Um, now, this is a hint of the conquest of David because it says, again in verse 21, uh, the Jebusites and the people of Benjamin live in Jerusalem to this day. Well, we know that eventually David comes, right? And he takes possession of the city, makes it his, his capital and keeps the Jebusites there. So you, you can kind of see a timeline of when, is, when are these things actually been written. But what is important for us to see, this compromise, the Jebusites were not supposed to survive. So instead of cleansing the land, they move in with the inhabitants. That's the compromise. Um, so uh, if, this is an interesting little point. Um, they move in, and the city isn't known as Jerusalem at this time. This is a later name for it. It's, it, it later in Judges, it's called Jebus because it's the land of the Jebusites. And interesting, just, it's their city. Benjamin, they're, they're just living there. But it's the Jebusites who run things. Now, um, but regardless, it clearly shows the failure to fulfill God's calling for Israel in general. In verses 22 to 26, we get the house of Joseph. Picking up there, verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. The Lord was with them and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the way into the city. We will deal kindly with you. He showed them the way into the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all of his family go. The man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Again, notice the chronological point. Whenever it's written, we can sort of say, okay, there ought to be a town called Luz up near the, the Hittites. This is when the story is written. A um, couple things to note here. One, the house of Joseph means the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. It very possibly exclusively means Ephraim 
But Ephraim could mean the northern tribes. So much like Judah becomes a title for the southern tribes of Israel, uh, the southern kingdom, Ephraim becomes the title for the northern tribes, really just who's the biggest tribes. Um, but nevertheless, I think this is the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, so I do think it's worth pointing out, I, I've, point, I've said this before, I think the writer of Judah has an ax to grind. I think it's somewhat propaganda, not still inspired, given to us by God, but I think the writer has a certain biased perspective. I've shown you this before. In chapter one, it's all about Judah and their triumphs. The civil war at the end of the book is about how Benjamin almost ruined the entire nation. Well, you come into 1 Samuel, Saul is a Benjaminite. He's, he must therefore be bad. David is of Judah. He must therefore be good. Here, I think you get a flavor of this. You go from Judah and Benjamin are the first two tribes we get details of. And then Ephraim is the next of all the bad tribes. Those are the tribes up north. Now, we know with the story of David that Israel was already split in two because David first becomes king of Judah. His capital is in Hezron or Hebron. And it isn't until later he's able to become king of all the tribes. But he's a southern king first, sort of like King James of King James fame. He's King James the sixth, I think, of Scotland until he becomes King James the first of England. He, he, he manages to unite the, the Scotland and England. Um, and that's what David does. He's first king down here, and then he becomes king of, of everyone. Um, however, um, here we see uh, the, 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 uh, uh, they are able to capture Bethel. This is a significant city in the history of Israel. It's 12 miles north of Jerusalem. Its name means house of God, Bethel, house, El. Anytime you see El in Hebrew, it's God. Uh, the house of God, this is the name it was given by Jacob. You remember the uh, story of the ladder or the uh, stairway to heaven? Um, that is Jacob that names that. And you also notice there, its city's name was Luz. It's just interesting. It's, the Bible was written by those who were living in the world of the Bible. These little details, I think, are important. Because he's saying, uh, look, Bethel, let me tell you where Bethel is. You know where Luz is? That's Bethel. So everybody knows where Luz is at this time, which means that, that they know where it is they're talking about. They're not making stuff up. There's a history here, and they're telling that to us. Um, now, Bethel would become a key religious city in the history of Israel, both in general, but also in the northern tribes uh, in the divided kingdom. Uh, for example, the Ark of the Covenant is put here. Judges chapter 20, we, we discover this, the ark itself. You remember that it is David who has to move it, I believe, from Bethel to Jerusalem. That's when he's wearing the, uh, um, the priestly ephod and he's dancing and his wife don't like that. So he has to march it from Bethel 12 miles south to Jerusalem. And you remember he gets to Jerusalem, he doesn't have a temple. So he thinks, you need a temple. I have this great palace. You don't have, you don't have a palace. And that leads to, to Solomon. Samuel will conduct business here. We don't need to read all this. You, you can see it. Um, he, so he's, he's like a judge in general of Israel. And one of the main cities he operates out of is Bethel. Very important city. Uh, finally, Jeroboam, the first king of the northern tribes, the divided kingdom. He tries to turn Bethel into Jerusalem. So basically what it comes down to, as this text says, is... Jerusalem is the center of everything. Well, he just broke off 
from Jerusalem. He has to come up with his own Jerusalem. He chooses Bethel. But what's interesting is we're not going to worship Yahweh in Bethel. We're going to make golden calves in Bethel. Does that story sound familiar? Burning uh, 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 golden calves? <laughs> yeah. He, he's, he's the new Aaron. And that's not a compliment. Yeah. We'll come back to Jeroboam uh, later. Now, this capture of Bethel, does it, does it sound familiar? One of the most famous stories in all the Bible follows the same pattern. You tell me if you can think of a story where spies scout a city. They find, yeah, Jericho. They find someone in it. So, so they, they scout the city, um, and they send in spies in verse 24. And also in verse 24, they find someone who knows the city well and is willing to help them. In Jericho, it was a woman, a harlot, who, who lived like on the edge of the wall, which ended up surviving. We know that archaeologically ended up surviving. In Bethel, it's an unnamed man. That detail is important because we know Rahab. We don't know the name of this guy. One's a man, one's a woman, right? Um, with the help of the spy, they're able to sack, uh, sack the city and they let their, their spy go. He, um, he is different from Rahab in a very important detail. Rahab joined the Israelites, we know there's several Gentiles with the Hebrews. Rahab joins them. So she has a type of conversion. You remember the story is the spies come and they say, look, we're all scared to death. I'm on your side. Now that makes sense in light of her being a harlot, right? Is, is, is she, she's not loyal to anyone, but she sees that God is with the people of Israel. And so she joins them and stays with them. And we know she stays with them because she is of the line of Judah, the line of David, the line of Jesus. She's one of, I believe, three women mentioned in genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. This gentleman, he doesn't stay with them. It's an opportunity to save his life. And so he gives them all the information. They keep their end of the bargain. Hey, we'll let you and your family go. And he goes off to join the Hittites, not the Israelites. That's the point of the story. So this compromise, it's not conquest, it's compromise. In the one end, they do what God wanted them to do. They took possession of Bethel. Bethel, what an important city. But in reality, thinking they were doing things like, my, my, my daddy always told me the story of Jericho, let's do it like that. And actually, the most important part they're getting wrong. And it's going to affect them because the Hittites are going to be a thorn in their side the rest of their history. Um, by the way, the Hittites for a long time... Um, uh, critics of the Bible said that the Hittites didn't exist until we found them. Um, and we, we know their language now. I've got a book in my office right now. It is all about the Hittites. So, I mean, for years, decades, centuries, people say, you can't trust the Bible. The Hittites didn't exist. And then we started digging. So I think that's fascinating. Um, verse 27 to 28, we meet Manasseh. So, so we went from uh, Benjamin to Ephraim to Manasseh. That, that order makes sense. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen, so house of Sheen, and its villages, or Ta'adnach, because you got to pronounce those vowels, and its village, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo. There you go, end times buffs. Armageddon. Of course, Armageddon is not Armageddon. It's Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. So there it is. You're excited now, aren't you? Um, 
Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. But, and of course, mine doesn't say but, but we'll add it. But when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. The story does get interesting, didn't it? It was conquest, conquest, conquest. Now it's failure, failure, failure. And here is a big one. So uh, they failed to drive out the Canaanites from their land. One of the reasons for their failure could be tied again to the superiority of the Canaanites. Uh, for example, um, Joshua 17, 6, I, did, I don't think, I don't have it up here. Joshua 17, 6, 16 tells us that the cities of the Valley of Jezreel, which is where all this is, they too have irons of chariots. Chariots of iron, sorry. Uh, much like um, the, Judah had to deal with. Uh, and we, we, we saw, actually, we, we looked at Judges or Joshua 17 earlier. Um, but it's interesting, however, in Joshua 12, Joshua defeated the kings of these cities, Tanakh, Megiddo, Carmel, and Dor. So despite Joshua's victories, they never had a permanent Israel presence there. And now they have to go back into those cities and try to retake the land. So that was a big mistake that, that, that they made. Well, despite the failure to, to, to defeat um, and to conquer these cities, um, they decide to grow stronger and force them into labor. This is slavery. Um, now, this is interesting. Is Slavery in the ancient world was ubiquitous. I've shared this before, that one of the reasons that the Romans wouldn't let you have some sort of identity marker for slaves is they feared that the slaves, once they discovered how many of them they were, they would unite and overthrow the government. It's like at least a third of the population were slaves. I just want you to pause. In America, that's over 100 million people. Now, with that said, slavery is equally ubiquitous today, both in terms of economic slavery and sexual slavery. Slavery is all over the world. And the fact that we're appalled by it in terms of the global world makes us weirdos. Slavery historically has just been around. However, I want you to notice this, that for the most part, and it gets complicated, but, but just, just in general, what the Israelites are doing to the Canaanites is what the Canaanites did in general. It's just like Adonai Bezek. This is what the Canaanites do. I mean, wouldn't you like to have free labor? Yeah. And if you can subjugate them, why kill them when you can enslave them? They're acting like the Canaanites. Um, now, this becomes a problem for Israel, particularly someone like Solomon. Let me give you two examples of this. When Solomon built the palace, he enlisted slave labor. Now, this has been a problem in Israel's history. Remember that the first slave, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the first slave we meet in the Bible is Abraham's mistress, Hagar. Here you have a Jewish man with an Egyptian slave. She must flee captivity to go home. Later, it is the Egyptians who enslaved the Israelites. They must flee captivity to go home. And so the rule of Israel was, yes, there's going to be forced labor in Israel, all that, and I don't want to chase that rabbit. Um, but understand that we treat forced labor different than the nations for one very obvious reason. We were once slaves in Egypt. 
But here we see Manasseh not following that. They're taking advantage and they're exploiting people they view to be inferior to them. That's a big problem you have. This is compromise. Uh, not good at all. By the way, I want to point this out about Solomon. When Solomon saw Jeroboam was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. There's fun connections here. There's the house of Joseph, house of Joseph enslaving people. Jeroboam, Solomon sees and says, this, this dude is on it. That's the guy who will lead a revolt and become the first king of the northern tribes of Israel after Solomon dies. So you get Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. That is one of the most confusing things you'll find in the Bible. <laughs> Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. If you can't remember that, welcome to the party. Okay. Um, so uh, Ephraim, verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. We just talked about Gezer, the Armana uh, tablets. They're complaining, hey, we're being attacked. Come help us. Um, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. So you see here that uh, Gezer's 18 miles west of Jerusalem. And so they can't, if you can't beat them, join them. That seems to be the philosophy here. Verse 30 is Zebulun. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahala, uh, laugh out loud. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. There's just like Manasseh, um, very similar. Asher in verse 31 and 32, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alav or of Achzib. There you go. I've got to put that accent in there. Or the Helba or the Afik or the Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. You see in, you see in a pattern here. Now, notice the cities here. Um, Akko, Sidon, Aflab, Achzib, Hebla, Afik, Rehab. This area is of Mount Carmel. It's where Tyre and Sidon are, because Sidon is mentioned here. Those will be influential centers of idol worship. Jesus will come later, he'll say to, to Israel, if the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon had a fraction of the revelation you had, they would have repented a long time ago. Because in the Is Jewish mind, Tyre and Sidon are like Solomon and Gomorrah. They're wicked cities of idol worship. Here we see the beginning of that that, that um, um, Asher was unable to cleanse the land of idol worship. What do they do? They just move in next door. So uh, verse 33, we meet Naphtali. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, the house of Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anoth, the house of Anoth. It's a Canaanite God, we'll, we'll see. So they lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and the, uh, Beth Anoth became subject to forced labor for them. There's that reference to slavery again. Notice here that in Judges 1, slavery is a bad thing. These are freed slaves with slaves. Did you not forget what you suffered? Why would you want to be like the Egyptians? You remember much of Canaan is controlled by Egypt. So they've become like the Canaanites. They've become like the Egyptians. They are not becoming like Yahweh. Now, um, Beth Shemesh means the house of the sun. Uh, and was probably a center of sun worship. Most of your pagan religions worship the sun. Um, Beth Anoth means house of Anoth, who was a Canaanite goddess of war and was the sister of Baal or Baal. You seeing where this story is going? So, so it, I mean, it's clear to the reader, this is not going to end well. They're going to compromise. By the way, Shamgar in uh, Judges 3.31, I don't have it up here, Shamgar gets one verse. He's a judge. He is the son of a woman named Anoth. 
of the tribe. Now, we don't know this for sure, but it seems to be he is of Naphtali. So from Judges 1 to Judges 3, whatever the time chronology is, what we get is Naphtali comes in, they can't defeat them, so they move in next door to them. And the city is called the house of Anoth, the Canaanite goddess. And we meet someone who has a mother named Anoth. She seems to be as Canaanite as anyone. That's what happens. But God calls him out of that to deliver Israel. Like Abraham. That's why this chapter is so important, is it lays all these details out. Um, Finally, verse 34, 36, um, uh, we... we, uh, we get uh, the rest of it. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan. So it's the last tribe we have. So it's not all the tribes we have in this chapter. They pressed the people back into the hill country for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in, the, in Mount Harris, in Aijalon, and in Sha'al-Bim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Sela and upward. Uh, a couple of things to see here. One is this is a really hostile issue. So before it's they try, they try, they try, they failed. Here the dead, the uh, uh, the Amorites are like, okay, you can try. You failed. We're going after you now. This is much more forceful of a resistance you're getting from the Amorites. And so what you get then is is, is that uh, the Danites um, can never conquer them, but the house of Joseph. Ephraim and Manasseh, they later enslave the Amorites. And the Amorites are going to be a thorn in their side forever and ever. So real quickly, the youth are gone. So give me five, ten more minutes, okay? Um, What do we do with this? Two points. Uh, I don't even think I have these up here. One, disobedience breeds disaster. We saw it subtly with Judah. It's very evident in the others that the reason they cannot cleanse the land is because their own hearts haven't been cleansed. Already, they are too much like Cana, not like Israel. Um, and so this is an early act of judgment upon them. Um, um, secondly, Israel synchronized their faith. Um, we saw this with the mutilation of Adonai Bezek. Um, so just as mutilation is Canaanite behavior, so is Forced labor, Canaanite behavior. So they haven't even taken possession of the land. They're already looking like the inhabitants of the land. So they went from fearing the Canaanites because they were big and tall and strong to becoming like the Canaanites. It's amazing, isn't it? How quick that happens. Boy, we, we, can, be, we can be guilty of that, can't we? Yeah, Don. Oh, in Joshua? Is that Joshua? These the Gibeonites, right? Yeah, that's Joshua. Yeah, I don't know what they ended up doing with them. But yeah, they... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. And then they became believers, I think. hope so. Um, well, one last thing is uh, to consider this. Um, if you go to Hawaii now, or if you go anywhere in Europe right now, England, Europe, wherever you got to watch where you step because the war was so massive and so many bombs were dropped. It is a very real threat after almost 80 years since the war started. 
uh, World War II started, that you could step on a live ammunition, live ball. In fact, we're still finding these in Hawaii now. Um, but certainly throughout Europe, I found a story about Hawaii uh, online. And it was, you know, a local news story. But this is a major problem in Europe, that even though these bombs were dropped, these weapons were put there decades ago, because they were ignored and tolerated and things grew up around them and you didn't see them anymore, doesn't mean that they weren't going to come back and be a real danger to you. That's what compromise does. What compromise does, particularly in the realm of, of following Jesus, is we convince ourselves the small compromise won't matter. And eventually, we can ignore it. It can go dormant until we realize we're not even the people of God anymore. We've compromised so much. We can look back and see, I'm more Canaanite than I am Hebrew. Judges is a real warning to us in that regard. Notice how quickly this happened. It was just easier to enslave them. It was just easier to move indoor next to them. So instead of cleansing the land, they became like the inhabitants of the land. And that perhaps, I think when the history of the American church is written, perhaps that's the thing historians will point out. Eventually, it just became easy to be an American because we thought everybody was Christian. And before you knew it, we looked more American than we did Christian. So I think we can be guilty of this as well. All right. Danny, did we miss anything? It's good stuff. It's good stuff. All right. How about we pray and we be dismissed? Um, Don Douglas, will you, will you close us?